Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Greg Knuckles. Greg is an accomplished powerlifter and powerlifting coach, the founder of the website Stronger by Science, and a co-founder of the research review MASS, Monthly Applications in Strength Sports. Today, we're going to be talking all about Greg's master's research into the differences between men and women when it comes to fatigue and recovery when strength training, along with some other considerations women might find useful for their training. Let's talk science. Hey, Greg, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Very, very good. We finally managed to make it work. I'm happy about that. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> what I'm less happy about is apparently as soon as I joined your live, now my headphones don't work. So let me, oh, no. let me let me know if you're getting any feedback. Oh, does, it, does it sound okay on your end? Yeah, I, I can I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Just just, just for everybody else, literally uh, five minutes before this, Greg and I were just kind of practicing this call, and everything that could go wrong was going wrong. My headphones wouldn't work. My speaker wouldn't work. Greg couldn't hear me. Greg couldn't see me. And then I could hear Greg, and Greg could hear me, and we couldn't see each other. But anyway, it seems to be working now. Um, so, uh, Greg, we're going to talk about a lot of really interesting stuff today. But before we do that, um, just on the very, very slight chance that anybody who's tuning into this doesn't really know who you are, um, would you give us, be able to give us a little bit of an idea of kind of who you are and what you do, um, please? Uh, yeah, so my name's Greg. Um, I'm the co-owner of Stronger by Science, also part of a monthly research review called Mass Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Um, so that's what I do, who I am, just a random lifter, I guess. Uh, good old Southern boy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, just for anybody, uh, just so everybody knows, I asked Greg to give me a little bit of a bio um, about what he does. And Greg, do you remember what the bio was exactly? Uh, Greg is a powerlifter and strength coach. Yeah, that, that that was it. So literally everybody else who have asked for a bio has given me like a couple of paragraphs. And like, I'm like, oh, wow, geez. I'm going to have to digest this a little bit, you know, to, to kind of fit it in. But um, I really, really appreciate both your modesty and um, your succinctness in uh, in getting that out to me. So thank you. I, mean, I, I think that's the only relevant information. Like the, I have practical experience doing the stuff I talk about and it's what I do professionally. Like, I don't know. what What else would people need to know? I know, like the, other people might talk about things like, "Oh, I'm I'm Greg. I've I've got a lovely beard." Um, you know, they just put everything into it as much as they possibly could. Yeah, but but if they're watching the live, they'll see that. That that <laughs> should be obvious to everyone watching. It's great. Bear in mind, I'm going to be turning this into a podcast as well, so they're not going to have the visual cues. So, uh, oh, fair enough. There we go. Um, so you are a, a, a power lifter, and um, just for, uh, as Greg mentioned, so he does do a po or did you actually mention that you do a podcast yourself called the Stronger by Science podcast? Um, and if anybody who has ever listened to that uh, will know, Greg is very, very passionate about powerlifting, um, and that's one thing that really, really comes across uh, in the podcast. And I was wondering if you could kind of tell us how did you actually get into pod uh, not podcasting? You can tell us about that later. How did you get into powerlifting in the first place? <laughs> uh, luck, basically. Um, I got too injured to play real sports. Um, and, and by real sports, the sport, in the United what do you mean? Uh, American football, basketball, <laughs> baseball. 
Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I, I started, I, I got serious about lifting because basketball was my main sport. Um, and I could like kind of dunk if I got a perfect alley-oop, uh, but I have really small hands. And so I couldn't palm the ball with one hand. So I had to get up and dunk with two hands, which is considerably harder. And I needed maybe like three more inches on my vertical to feel comfortable going for dunks and games. And so that's like the only reason I got into lifting seriously. Um, and so then I got several pretty major concussions playing American football. And the guy that I had hired to help me get my vertical up just so happened to be Travis Mash, who nowadays is mostly known as a weightlifting coach. But back then he was the number one uh, 220 equipped Un, untested powerlifter in the world. So, like, he was very much in, in the powerlifting world, not as much in the weightlifting world back then. Um, and he was basically like, yeah, you know, you think this sucks now, but ultimately this is going to be good for you because you're a lot better at lifting weights than you were at real sports in the first place. <laughs> um, and so that is how I got into powerlifting. Killing you with kindness, eh? Wow. Um, just for um, – so – it's, when was the last time you actually competed in powerlifting? Whew. Couple couple years ago, it was January. It was either January 2016 or 2017, one of the two. Okay, and in that time period, I, I suppose one of the main reasons you haven't been competing is because you've been working on your master's, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for anyone listening, I wouldn't particularly recommend um, – trying to run two businesses and also be a full-time grad student. Uh, so yeah, not a ton of time to train over the last two years, but I'm getting back into it and have a meet scheduled for January actually. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Okay. Fantastic. Um, how has the uh, strength been over the past? Like how has it, has it taken much of a hit over the past couple of years? You know, one would think that it would, um, but it, it just didn't, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I probably got in like one workout per month, maybe. Um, wow. and I don't know, I may be like 10% weaker than my all time best, but still fairly comparable. Okay. Fantastic. What kind of, uh, what kind of numbers would you kind of be hoping for, um, with the upcoming meet in January? I don't so, know. Um, um, so, so bench is kind of a wild card. Um, it took more of a hit than squat and deadlift did. For squat, uh, I've, I've squatted, uh, close to 350 kilos in wraps, uh, 765 pounds. So what's that? Like three, 348, give or take. Um, but I haven't squatted 700 without wraps in a meet yet. Uh, and so this meet's not going to have wraps. And so it, at minimum, I want to squat 320. Um, and if I could get somewhere in like 330 range, I'd, I'd be pretty happy with that. Uh, but 320 is the goal. Bench, the most I've done in a meet, I, I believe my last meet I got 215, either 210 or 215. But uh, it, at some point in training, I want to just go ahead and hit 225, just or 500 pounds to, to notch that milestone. Uh, but if I could get like 220 in the meet, I'd be pretty happy with it. Um, and then deadlift, 
best I've ever done is like 332, 333. Most I've done on the platform is 315, give or take. Uh, no, 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 like 322. Um, but if I could get like 340, I'd be quite happy with that. So those, so you're, you're, those are just, those are the general numbers I mean for, but I mean, realistically, um, <laughs> the reason I'm competing is, uh, like at this point, I don't care that much about competing anymore. Like I, I compete to compete, not just to put numbers on a platform. And so essentially like the weights weigh the same in the gym. So I'm not just going to show up and do a meet for its own sake. Uh, I compete like if someone calls me out. And so uh, the guy who owns the gym that I train at is a pro strongman. And he, th that's the reason I competed two years ago at that meet. Um, he wanted to do his first powerlifting meet, thought that, you know, when he switched over to powerlifting, he'd get a lot stronger in the big three really quick. Um, we're in the same weight class. So he was like, yeah, let's, let's throw down. Um, and so I actually got injured like four days out from the meet, but still beat him. Um, and so he has challenged me again. And so I'm getting back on the platform just to defend my honor. So, I mean, realistically, my goal is to beat him. And as long as I beat him, I'm good. <laughs> okay. And that's, that's probably the purest form of competition that there is, just to make your friends look bad, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I suppose moving on from that, like, you know, you, you're not competing in powerlifting just for the sake of competing. Um, I think the burning question that a lot of people want to know about is when are you finally going to cut the cord with powerlifting entirely and start your own cooking channel on Instagram? Uh, on Instagram, probably never. I mean, I don't know. I think that if I ever started putting out cooking content, I would want it to be longer, like something more tailored to YouTube. Um, but I mean, I've got to, I've got to make time to actually get enough content out for the main things I do first. But I mean, one of these days I'd like to put out cooking stuff. I think that would be fun. Well, you, you already are. And just for anybody who's not aware, uh, if you ever want some good tips on how to cook some chicken, uh, head on over to, uh, to Greg's Instagram. Um, there's also some really good tips on uh, making ice cream as well. Um, so yeah, that's a, it's a very viable uh, career move for you. If you, uh, if you ever consider it, Greg. <laughs> Cool. Um, I it, to get onto the uh, the bread and butter of um, today, um, I suppose the first thing that I want to talk about is um, we're going to talk about your research and we're going to be talking about the differences between men and women when it comes to strength training. Um, but I suppose before we get into that, into your research specifically, what was it that made you want to look into that and kind of ask that question? If there was a, you know, what kind of differences were there between uh, the sexes? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, uh, there was a list of probably like 15 or 20 things that I would, that I was interested in, in studying for my master's. Um, and it ultimately just came down to what would be feasible to do as a master's project, because I mean, you know, not like a funded PI, like I wasn't going to be working with a big grant or anything. Um, and also what would be like feasible and doable with the equipment and lab space and just of the 
pretty large number of things that I was interested in. That was the project that seemed like it would be the most doable, um, while also being the most generally useful. So the reason I was interested in that question particularly is there's actually, uh, so my project looked at differences in uh, fatigability and recovery rate, and there wasn't that much recovery literature um, comparing men and women in the first place. And as far as the fatigue stuff goes, there, there was actually quite a bit of research, but the ecological validity for basically all of it was quite bad. Um, so, you know, we're talking like just holding an isometric contraction with like 40% of maximum contractile force uh, and just, you know, holding that for a few minutes until you fail. And in stuff like that, women are considerably less fatigable than men, um, but that's not how people actually train, you know. So I wanted to to do some more ecologically valid research in that area. Um, and it, it's just something that I thought would be useful to people because I it, it, it's a topic, sex differences in training is a topic that I see people discuss a lot. Um, it's an area where people didn't really seem to be aware of the extant research that was already out there. And like I said, there were some pretty notable gaps in the research. So uh, it seemed like a fun project that would be feasible to do and useful to the general lifting community. So uh, there were two or three projects on that list that met all of those criteria, and that's just the one I went with. Okay, cool. Um, I suppose if you are going to be you know, investigating sex differences between men and women, there has to be a reason for it. So. Why would there be a difference between men and women when it comes to strength training? What 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 would be the, the kind of the reason for that, and how would that kind of manif- manifest in their training and their training style themselves? Um, so there there are a few basic physiological differences that probably drive the functional differences we would be interested in. Um, probably most of them stemming from the differences in sex hormones, but. Also, women tend to have a slightly greater proportion of type 1 muscle fibers, which may or may not be hormonally influenced. Um, so that may kind of fall under the subheading of hormones, or it may not. Uh, but yeah, so women do have more type 1 muscle fibers relatively than men do. Uh, not a particularly large difference, but um, kind of on average, in when I say on average, there's a tremendous amount of variability here. But on average, men seem to have a little bit more than 50% type 2 fibers, and women seem to have a little bit more than 50% type 1 fibers. Um, And obviously, like, fiber types have different functional, have various functional differences. Type 1 fiber is a little bit less fatigable. Type 2 fiber is a little bit more powerful, uh, a little bit greater glycogen storage capacity, et cetera. Um, Then as far as hormonal differences go, obviously men have more testosterone, women have more estrogen. Estrogen is pretty poorly understood. Um, It is, it seems to be on net anabolic, Um, not so much in a directly kind of causing muscle protein synthesis type way, but in terms of protecting against muscle damage, reducing inflammation, um, aiding in kind of the satellite cell cycle uh, and myonuclear accretion. So it it actually has a lot of the same functions in muscle that testosterone does. Um, 
but it also causes some metabolic differences. So women at any given relative exercise intensity um, are going to be more reliant on aerobic metabolism and a little bit less reliant on anaerobic metabolism than men will be. Um, and then within kind of the sub subheading of aerobic metabolism, they tend to use a little bit more fat and a little bit less carbohydrate at any given relative exercise intensity than men do. And when you add all of that up, the greater type 1 fibers, uh, lower reliance on anaerobic metabolism, um, superior fat oxidation, you wind up with generally in, in many things, when you scale for relative intensity, women seem to have a little bit more endurance. Um, but I actually think the, uh, the, the key for resistance training might have to do more with just differences in muscle mass more than anything else. And the reason I think that's the case is um, one of the things that's going to not, like, directly cause, but is going to pretty substantially accelerate uh, muscle fatigue during fatiguing contractions is when muscles are being flexed hard enough to occlude blood flow. And so, like, I mean, you can flex any muscle right now. Like, just flex your biceps, and you'll see that they expand longitudinally. Um, that's just a thing that happens when you flex your muscle. And so that puts an occlusive pressure against the blood vessels running around that muscle. And so people with larger muscles are going to put more occlusive force on their blood vessels at any given relative muscle contraction intensity. Um, so I, I think that that's just one of the major factors as well. Like on top of all of the hormonal stuff and potential metabolic differences, just the fact that women tend to have less muscle than men on average, They're, they take longer during fatiguing contractions to occlude their blood vessels, um, which really, well, in the case of women, decelerates the rate of fatigue. Occlusion in general accelerates the rate of fatigue. Okay. Um, so it's kind of interesting that... Um let's say one of the main goals that a lot of people would have when it comes to strength training, which would be hypertrophy, growing larger muscles is actually to a certain extent, possibly counterproductive to uh, the training process itself. Would that be kind of fair enough to say? Not necessarily. Um, so I, I see where you're coming from with that. So people kind of have an assumption uh, and, and I see this assumption work out with a lot of the supplements that people recommend, where essentially you assume that if someone can do more volume, then they can cause more stimulus, and then that stimulus will cause greater adaptations, and that's going to be good. Um, and in the case of, say, creatine, that seems to work out really well. The Some of the other supplements that are supposed to like improve work capacity don't really seem to pan out quite as well for hypertrophy, but also tend to not have as many longitudinal studies. So we don't really know how how well that general idea works in practice. So if you if you have a basic mental model of hypertrophy where it's just, you know, you do X amount of work, and the more work you do, the greater stimulus that is, and the more hypertrophy that will cause, that thinking would make sense. But on the flip side if you have a different kind of mental model of um, of muscle hypertrophy where it's just, you know, 
you need to stimulate the motor units or the muscle fibers that you're trying to hypertrophy and you need to cause some requisite level of fatigue, then it could be the exact opposite where someone who, you know, due to various physiological factors has greater muscular endurance, it's more likely they need to do more work to get the same stimulus to cause hypertrophy. So, you know, you could see it as either a good thing or a bad thing. Like, you know, maybe your muscles get bigger, they fatigue a little bit faster. And so then like at any given relative intensity, you don't have to do quite as many reps to have a stimulatory effect. Um, and in my mind, either of those two models is very plausible. Okay. Cool. Um, I remember you speaking at the European powerlifting conference uh, last month, and you mentioned that women tended to be um, quite underrepresented in a lot of the scientific literature when it comes to strength training. Um, and I was, uh, I, you also mentioned that you did a bit of a meta-analysis on the differences between men and women um, and their responses to training. I was wondering if you'd be able to kind of go over some of the things that you found from that meta-analysis. Yeah, so uh, when it comes to hypertrophy, well, when it comes to both strength and hypertrophy, um, men start stronger, they start with more muscle, and on an absolute basis, they gain more muscle and gain more strength. I don't think that will surprise anyone. But if you look at, like, proportional changes, so, you know, like, increasing 20% from baseline versus increasing, you know, putting 20 pounds on a lift or whatever. So if you look at proportional increases, they actually seem to be pretty similar. So, for example, if a man starts out with 30 kilos of muscle mass, and if anyone's listening to this and thinks like, oh, that sounds super low, I'm not talking lean mass, I'm talking skeletal muscle mass, and like 30 to 35 kilos is is fairly standard for an untrained male. Uh, so if a guy starts with 30 kilos of muscle mass and adds 6 kilos of muscle mass, you know, that's a 20% increase. If a woman starts with 20 kilos and adds 4, that's a 20% increase. So, like, on a proportional basis, that's basically what you see. So as far as hypertrophy goes, pretty similar relative increases um, in both sexes. And so that's based on, like, 60, 80 studies over the past, like, 40 or 50 years. Like, there's there's a considerable amount of research on that. Um, when it comes to – actually, that's overstating it. So that's uh, – there's, like, 30-ish studies on hypertrophy. When it comes to strength, that's where there's, like, 60 or 80 studies, um, quite a lot. And they tend to find that women, if anything, proportionally gain strength a little bit faster than men do when exposed to training. Um, however, most of that research is on untrained people. And one potential thing to keep in mind is that not all untrained people are created equal. So, you know, if, if you're someone who's never touched a weight in your life, but you, you know, played a lot of sports growing up, and now maybe you have a job that includes a fair amount of manual labor, like you're still untrained insofar as you haven't lifted weights before, but you're not untrained in the sense that your muscles haven't received like a fair amount of stimulus throughout your life, you know? Um, and so it could be a case where the untrained women are more relatively untrained than the untrained men. And so, you know, you would kind of expect a proportionally greater increase in more untrained people, which may skew towards the women. 
Um, but yeah, just in terms of what research has found is that women maybe proportionally gain a little bit more, have larger relative gains in strength than men. Um, and one thing I'll note, which which is interesting, is uh, I, I do think a lot of that has to do with the baselines they're starting with. Um, but you actually see that if you dig into research on powerlifters as well. Uh, <laughs> and by research on powerlifters, I mean uh, a blog post I made one time. <laughs> Because uh, I don't, I don't think this has ever been written up, but it should be. So um, one time, also because I was bored, I just downloaded uh, the OpenPowerlifting.org dataset, uh, which Open Powerlifting is a super awesome website. I'd recommend everyone check it out if you're into powerlifting. It's the most thorough database of meat results that there is by far. Um, and so they also let you just download their data set, which is awesome. And so I downloaded their data set. I filtered out the people who had only ever done one competition. And so it was everyone who had competed twice or more. And I looked to see what the differences in strength were from one meet to the next, um, separated it out by sex. And what I saw is that, like, strength gains scaled for time. So, so I looked at, like, change in total per month. Um, that was actually larger in female competitors than male competitors as well. It wasn't a particularly large difference, and the absolute changes in strength for, for both sexes were way smaller than what you see in the research, which makes sense because most powerlifters, you know, don't, don't hit up a meet on day one in the gym. Like, most, of, most competitors are fairly well-trained. Um, but, yeah, even within... Uh, even within competitive powerlifters, it seems like women make r larger relative strength gains than men, which um, I didn't particularly expect to find, and I think is pretty interesting. It, it could be the case that maybe women are more likely to do their first meet earlier in their training career than men are. Um, so that that's a possibility. But then I also looked at, like, people's percentiles of, like, relative strength starting out, so, so I believe I used either Wilk score or elementary scaled strength. really doesn't matter. But the women in, like, the higher percentiles of competitive competitiveness also seem to be gaining strength relatively faster than the men in the higher percentiles of competitiveness. Um, so I don't really know what an explanation for that would be, but it was at least interesting enough to make me take notice. Okay. Um, one thing just before we get into your, the particulars of your own research. So you mentioned something about, um, men kind of having a, uh, generally having a, a larger baseline amount of muscle mass and also men generally having, uh, somewhat more, potentially having somewhat more physical jobs where they can kind of maintain a, a larger amount of muscle mass. Um, this well, I mean, kind of, that, that's on average, that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of mention, uh, kind of bring up here is just because it's kind of, you know, uh, from a kind of a, my own, my own interests is that obviously with amongst men, there's a massive focus on strength training, um, in the general population amongst men. Um, and that is less so amongst women. Um, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on why it might be, um, kind of important to change that uh, that paradigm and kind of see more women focusing more on um, on strength training, or if you have any thoughts on that at all. I mean, 
strength training is one of the best things you can do to reduce your risk of osteoporosis, um, which is relatively common and affects women way more often than men. Uh, like bone mineral density tends to start decreasing pretty rapidly post-menopause. Uh, and women never have as much bone mineral density as men on average in the first place. So like in terms of, in terms of like long-term health and functionality type outcomes, like it's good for everyone to be resistance training. Like sarcopenia is also fairly common. Um, I don't know right off the top of my head, which sex it's more common in, but it's pretty common in both men and women. Um, when once people hit like 70 plus, and so, like, I mean, resistance training is great for preventing sarcopenia and maintaining quality of life and functionality as everyone ages. But in terms of, like, you know, tangible shit that you can help prevent with resistance training, like, osteoporosis is incredibly more common in women than men. And resistance training is a great thing to do to combat that. So, yeah, I mean, like, there's huge benefits for everyone, but probably disproportionately so for women. Um, so yeah, it would be good to get a lot more women into strength training. Absolutely. And that concludes uh, today's public service announcement. Um, thanks for that, Greg. Um, what I'd like to do now is kind of, I'd like to get into your research a little bit more. Um, would you be able to kind of give us an idea of, of how you, uh, of what your research was specifically um, kind of how you structured it, um, and then, then maybe we can get into what you actually found. Yeah, so um, I did, I mean, it, it was basically an acute study. I guess there was a very, very small longitudinal component, but uh, basically I was looking at sex differences in, in acute fatigability and also recovery from uh, strength training. I chose the bench press as my model exercise for a few reasons. One, because, and so this will give kind of people kind of a, a look behind the veil, because I think a lot of people don't really consider what goes into setting up a research project and just, you know, they sometimes read the paper themselves, but more often than not just read people discussing the paper. Um, and don't really think about like, you know, logistically, how would, how would you do this, this shit? And so, like, the most annoying thing for most research projects is recruitment. And so if I wanted to – so I wanted to use a trained population um, because, you know, I don't care that much about untrained lifters. I wanted people with at least a bit of experience. Um, and so then the question is, like, what exercises do everyone – or what exercise does everyone do or do the largest number of people do? And, like, for that, it's clearly bench press. Um, like, if I went with squats and then I get people in the lab the first day, I'm like, all right, let's squat. And they, you know, are doing half squats. Then I can't really act like they're trained in the barbell squat. They're trained in the half squat. And if I try to get them to full squat, one, they're going to suck at it. It's probably not going to be particularly safe to work them up to a max. And, two, when I put them through a fatigue protocol, they're going to be fucked up from it because like the first time someone does full squats, they're used to half squats, like their quads, hips, adductors just trash the next day. And so, you know, at that point, I'm not looking at a sex comparison. I'm looking at a, has this person ever done squats comparison? You know? Um, so a lot of people do bench press that makes recruitment easier. 
And then you try to standardize as much as possible in research, and bench press is easy-peasy. Like, does the bar touch the chest, and does it lock out? Um, I also had people pause, so they want to be bouncing it, but, I mean, that's that's easy to standardize. You're looking, does it touch the chest, does it lock out? Kind of keeping an eye on the hips to make sure the butt's not coming up. Pretty straightforward. Uh, with squats, it's subjective. Like, people freak out about powerlifting meat videos all the time because like maybe a squat looks deep enough but it was red lighted or you know it gets white lights when it looked too high from video and there's and i guess i could have like hooked up with some engineering people to develop like a laser system to tell me perfectly objectively if everyone was hitting depth every rep or not but i mean that's completely overkill for a master's project um, so in terms of the common lifts people do, bench press is by far the easiest to standardize. And so that, those are the main reasons I chose bench press. Um, and so, yeah, what I did is first day, I have people come in, um, and, oh, and, and the last thing as well, sorry, um, is I was interested in, like, local muscular endurance, not so much general aerobic or anaerobic endurance. And so if someone, if someone's not a particularly strong, say squatter, for example, um, their performance in a rep test on the squat is probably going to be limited by endurance of the lower body musculature. If I, for example, tried to do a 10 rep max squat, it's more of a test of general anaerobic endurance than anything. Um, <laughs> more often than not, I just stop the set because I can't breathe anymore. Not that my legs have given out, you know? Um, and, and that's because like the energy cost of exercise scales with work being done. So work here in the physics sense and with squats, you're, you're moving your own body weight as well. So that's something you have to pack onto it. And if someone, you know, squats three times as much as someone else, the energy cost per rep is three times as much as the other person. Um, and so I, I think for most people, squats, or you could do a rep test of squat, and it would be a pretty good test of muscular endurance. But there would be a non-negligible chance that at least several of the people in the sample would be testing their anaerobic endurance, like their general anaerobic endurance, more so than just their local muscular endurance. Um, and with bench press, like <laughs> if you can't do another rep because of like systemic anaerobic fatigue, you're just so out of shape that you have issues, you know, like that, that's pretty uncommon. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I went with bench press. And so in terms of the study setup, I'd have people come in on the first day, uh, give them a DEXA scan so I could get their body comp. I was interested in arm lean mass to see if that was uh, predictive of anything that I was interested in, so the fatigue and recovery measures. Um, the women had them do a pregnancy test before that because you don't want to put a fetus through a DEXA scan. One thing that I was scared about the entire study is, like, I want to give a woman a pregnancy test and it come back and she's pregnant. Cause, like dog, that's not, that's not my job. Like I don't want to have to tell a woman she's pregnant, you know, <laughs> that should be something she finds out for herself. Uh, thankfully that didn't happen though. Um, then, then after that got height and weight, um, 
for every session before anything else, I checked hydration status um, just because, like, hydration levels can affect endurance, affect performance. Wanted to make sure that that was controlled for. And then uh, session one also gave some questionnaires to get an idea of people's sleep habits, their stress, their training background, um, just to, to make sure that I could make a good comparison between my, my men and women. Um, and then also to see whether, like, their day-to-day stress or sleep habits, sleep issues would be correlated with uh, more thinking recovery here than acute fatigue. So anyway, after all of that stuff, we went to the weight room, had them work up to a max on squat, or not on squats, I'm talking about squats this whole time, uh, work up to a max on bench press. And for that, uh, and for, for every session, we did set the 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%, and 80% before anything else, uh, doing triples and having them push every rep as fast as possible. That let me get their load velocity profile. And the reason I wanted a load velocity profile is, um, so like the recovery literature that is out there, most of the time, what it's looking at is stuff like maximum isometric torque. Um, so, you know, like kicking your foot out against an immovable resistance, which again, like that's not the type of performance most people care about. Like it's generally, can I bench as much as I did two days ago to be good for another workout? Um, so dynamic performance. And so most research hasn't looked at that. And with load velocity profiles, you can fairly accurately project a, a one rep max. So as load goes up, velocity goes down. That shouldn't really surprise anyone. What is pretty cool is just how that relationship is like almost perfectly linear, like ridiculously close to perfectly linear. Um, and so if you have people work up to a few maxes and you get an idea of what their velocity at one rep max is, you can, you know, work them up from 30% to 80%, uh, plot their load velocity profile, extrapolate that down to their velocity at one rep max and get a pretty accurate one rep max estimate. Um, so that's why I was using load velocity profile. So I could get estimated one rep max instead of relying on something like isometric force output. Um, and also, I didn't want to use one rep maxes themselves because I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But after the fatigue protocol, um, I was monitoring recovery for three days. And I didn't want to have people hit a max every day for three days straight because at that point, are you really looking at recovery from the fatigue protocol or are you just looking at, you know, fatigue and recovery from maxing every day, you know? Um, so anyway, got a little ahead of myself. So back to session one, load velocity profile, work up to a one rep max. That's it for day one. On day two, they'd come in, I'd check their hydration. If they were dehydrated, have them drink a bunch of water, check their hydration again, just keep going until that's good. Uh, go back down to the gym, load velocity profile, work up to a one rep max again, rest for five minutes, then take 75% of the best of their two one rep maxes and do one set to failure. So I wanted, I wanted to get an idea of both kind of like work capacity, but also single set strength endurance. One, to see the strength of the relationship between those two factors. Uh, and two, just to get, you know, two different estimates of fatigability and not just like one construct. Uh, 
So day two was 48 to 72 hours after day one. Day three, 48 to 72 hours after day two. For that, uh, they'd come in. Um, before they started warming up, I'd get their resting lactate levels. Then load velocity profile, go back down to 75% of their max. Sets of five, 90, 90 seconds between sets, just until they reach the point of failure. Um, so for most people, 75% is somewhere in the neighborhood of like a 9, 10 rep max, give or take. So they were starting on average with like four or five reps in reserve. Um, constrained rest between sets, so 90 seconds, that's still like a significant amount of time to recover, but probably not recover fully. And then just keep doing sets until they eventually failed. So from the previous session, I had single set strength endurance, just one set to failure. Here, it's more, it's a combination of strength endurance, but also recovery between sets to get an idea of more just like what someone's work capacity would be in, um, in something resembling like a normal training session, you know? Um, and then after they reach the point of failure, I'd have them rest for five minutes, get their post-exercise lactate, rest for five more minutes, load velocity profile again to get an idea of how much they fatigued acutely. That was it for day three. Then days four through six, which day four was 24 hours after day three, and then three days consecutively, uh, just come in, load velocity profile, give them a quick questionnaire about uh, how well they slept the night before, how many hours of sleep they got, and also... Um, a subjective rating of muscle soreness for the pecs, triceps, and front delts, 0 to 100 scale with 0 being no soreness whatsoever, 100 being the maximum conceivable soreness that one could ever have. Um, and so just monitoring performance recovery and soreness for the next three days. And uh, that was that. That's what we did. And that's what you did. So you basically had people... Uh, basically do as many sets as possible to failure on bench. Um, what did you find? So, um, let's see. Wish I had the results in front of me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Come on, so Greg, we all know you've got an amazing memory. So I'll start with the easy stuff. Uh, the men were taller and heavier and had more lean mass, as one would expect. Um, very large differences in arm lean mass. In terms of the subject's baselines, there weren't significant differences in the stress profile um, using the perceived stress questionnaire. There weren't significant differences in sleep using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. Um, their training backgrounds were comparable. And so what I mean by comparable is um, the – so total prior years of training were pretty similar. Um, I want to say it was like five years for the women, six years for the men, something like that. However, the men had been bench pressing for a little bit longer than the women had. Uh, basically, if you look at years spent training and years spent bench pressing, it was basically the same number for men. So, you know, you hit the gym day one, you're bench pressing. Uh, for the women, there was like a 18 month to two year gap between when they started lifting and when they started bench pressing. Um, so the men had been bench pressing a little bit longer. And then I asked about like training frequency, weekly sets performed, et cetera, just stuff like that. And the men did seem to train the bench press a little bit harder than the women um, in terms of like total volume and total frequency. 
but those differences weren't significant. Like they were fairly small, but kind of leaned a little in favor of the men doing more. However, in terms of um, in terms of performance, so I used the IPF's new formula for scaling bench press performance, like the IPF points. Um, that was pretty similar between the sexes. So the mean IPF points for bench press for the men was like 440, and for the women it was about 460. Um, and the way that formula works is 500 is supposed to be the average, and the standard deviations are supposed to be 100. So basically, the subjects in my study were pretty well trained. On average, they were within one standard deviation of competitive powerlifters. If the average was 500, then they would have been like perfectly average for people at a powerlifting meet. So they were a little bit worse than the average competitive powerlifter, but within one standard deviation, which is pretty good. Um, and if anything, the women were slightly stronger than the men, um, like scaled using the IPF formula. So, so training status seemed to be pretty similar, uh, with maybe the women having slightly better performance, but the men having like slightly longer training background. Um, and then in terms of the actual like fatigue and recovery outcomes, single set strength endurance was, was basically the same. Um, I think it was like, it was like 8.9 reps for men and like 9.3 for the women, but it wasn't a significant difference and like 0.4 reps isn't a practically large difference either. Um, However, for the fatigue protocol, so the sets of five with 90 seconds between sets until the point of failure, the women ended up getting like twice as many sets as the men did until they eventually failed. Um, the men ended up averaging about 30 reps in total, so about six sets. Um, and the women got about 60 reps on average, so like close to 12 sets. And in terms of recovery, um, predicted one rep max looked like, if anything, it recovered a little bit quicker in the women, but there weren't significant differences. And on the flip side, the men were a little bit less sore than the women were and maybe, like, recovered soreness-wise a little bit faster than the women. But those differences weren't significant either. So uh, recovery was kind of a toss-up. Single-set strength endurance um, was similar between the sexes. But fatigability during the fatigue protocol – um, women had substantially better endurance than the men did. And uh, that's basically what we found. Oh, another interesting thing to note is single-set strength endurance. And uh, so single-set single strength endurance wasn't very tightly correlated with uh, performance during the fatigue protocol. So there was a significant correlation, but it was an R value of like 0.4, give or take. Which means that variation in single set strength endurance only explained about 16% of the variance in fatigue protocol performance. Um, so it seemed like recovery between sets was much more strongly predictive of how well people could tolerate volume within an entire session than how many reps they could do in a single set with a fixed intensity, which I guess does make sense, but I, I kind of expected the single set strength endurance uh, number to be a little more tightly correlated with the fatigue protocol performance. Okay. I wanted to know, Rick, what did you think of um, the results? Because obviously you, you saw a, a, a difference of basically the girls were able to do twice as much volume as the men. 
Um, and I wanted to know, did you find that surprising? Um, I, I found the magnitude surprising. Um, so I, I expected the women to perform better, but I, I don't know. I think I would have expected a difference of maybe like 40, 50%, give or take. Um, so like the twofold difference surprised me. One thing I want to make clear about what I found though is, um, I don't, I don't want people to hear this and take away like twofold difference as if that's just how it is. So one, one thing to keep in mind is that there was considerable variation within the sexes as well. So for the men, performance ranged from 13 total reps prior to failure to 51-ish. Wow. Uh, no, 54. 54 was the most for men. And for women, it ranged from 19 to 124. So, you know, obviously, like, large mean differences between the sexes, but there were, you know, several men who did better than a fair chunk of the women and, and vice versa. Um and the other thing to keep in mind is any magnitude is going to be based on the experimental protocol one uses. So, for example, I did 75% for sets of five with 90 seconds between sets. Maybe the difference would be larger if the rest periods were shorter. Maybe it would be smaller if the rest intervals were longer. Maybe the difference would be smaller if we used a heavier weight. Maybe the differences would be larger if we went closer to failure from set one. Like, you know, there, there's a lot of different possibilities there. So I, I do think that under under most submaximal protocols, if rest intervals are equated, women are probably going to have, they're probably going to recover a little bit faster between sets than men and be able to handle more volume. But, you know, it very well could be the case that if, I used the exact same study protocol and had the women rest 90 seconds and allowed the men to rest two minutes. Maybe they perform exactly the same. Um, so yeah, it's just, you, you have to keep in mind the protocol used and the constraints placed on it. And when you hear a magnitude, don't automatically assume that that's going to be like the case of like for all individuals and all protocols that one could possibly use to, um, to investigate a particular phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose um, when we're talking about science in general, we have to be very, very careful with um, how a certain research study can kind of be translated into into real-world scenarios. Um, and like you said yourself, like one, one of the, the first things to think about is with your study where you were just looking at bench. Um, and if, if we're talking, you know, almost exclusively in the in the realm of powerlifting, you know, you've got two other lifts there that, that may um, – behave completely differently um, in the same kind of uh, study. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, one, one thing I wanted to kind of um, to bring up, just seeing as we're, we're, we're talking about these differences in, in, in sex, um, between the sexes, is um, based on not just on your own research, but on the research that you've done looking into um, uh, sex differences in strength sports, what kind of practical things um, can people or should people take into account when programming um, or, or when doing strength training in general um, with women? I mean, I think, I think the biggest factor to account for is the individual. Um, like, I don't know, 
I don't know that I would preempt. So, okay. If I was in a situation where I was, say, teaching a group training class, and I had one class that was all men and one class that was all women, I may have some differences in the programs that I would make with the assumption that with a relatively large group, I wouldn't be able to make a ton of tweaks for the individuals in those classes. So in a situation like that, I would probably feel more comfortable using shorter rest intervals for the women, maybe having volume be a little bit higher, et cetera. Um, if you're a personal trainer, though, and you're training people one-on-one or, you know, you're, you're programming for people on the web um, and, you know, you're, you're also making individualized programs, um, and just simply due to the variations within each sex, I don't know that you would necessarily want to account for sex super hard on the front end because, you know, the, the mean, the group means were, were 30 reps for the men, about 60 for the women. Um, but like, you know, there were dudes who got 50 plus total reps prior to failure. Uh, and there were women that got fewer than 25. And so if I just wrote a program for a woman knowing nothing about her and just assume like, oh, she's going to have crazy good strength endurance and I give her a shit ton of volume, you know, maybe she's one of those women with considerably worse than average strength endurance, which like my sample was 21 men and 21 women. So we're not even talking outliers here. We're talking, you know, within the realm of what you would find in a pretty reasonable sample. Um so, you know, if, if I just assumed, oh, this person's a woman, she's going to have, you know, great work capacity and not need long rest between sets, et cetera. I could very well wind up giving her training that's entirely too challenging, you know, uh, if I just tried to account for the factor of sex super hard on the front end. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the most important thing to keep in mind with anyone is just you need to feel out what someone can manage and what they respond well to as an individual. Um, because the, 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 there was like for both men and women, there was like more than a fourfold difference between the worst performer and the best performer. Um, but there was like a twofold difference between sexes. So like the within sex variation was larger than the between sex variation. So yeah, I mean the, the individual is the main thing you always need to account for. Fantastic. So um, I, I just, I do realize that there is often a bit of a debate um, in the, the health and fitness world amongst people who would be inclined to say that um, women need to train completely differently from men. And then the other camp that would say that women and men should uh, train uh, identically. Um, whereas you're proposing this, um, completely out of left field model that says let's treat people like individuals and see what works for them. Would that be right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, just while we're on the topic um, of, uh, again, um, differences between men and women. Um, one thing that uh, a lot of people wanted me to speak about coming up to this, uh, this Instagram live was that uh, they wanted to know about the role that, um, hormones can play in uh, in women's training um, and specifically when it comes to the menstrual cycle um, and what effect uh, a menstrual cycle may have on uh, women's training. So first off, let me say that the discussion of, of menstrual cycle variations probably only applies to a minority of people. 
Um, most women, most women below about 50, based on the most recent data I've seen, use hormonal contraceptives. And most women over 50 don't have a monthly cycle anymore. Um, so, <laughs> like, when, when you're putting exogenous hormones into your body, that changes, you know, month to month hormonal fluctuations. And so this would primarily only apply to people who uh, don't take hormonal contraceptives and just have like a, a natural monthly cycle. Um, but if that's the case, so in general, and to massively simplify very complex physiology that people probably don't really want to hear me rant about for 45 minutes just to set the groundwork. Um, basically, estrogen is great um, and does a bunch of good things that one would want to happen. And progesterone doesn't independently do bad stuff, but it largely counters the beneficial things that estrogen does. And so over the course of the menstrual cycle, so start, starting at the onset of menses, um, estrogen and progesterone are very low. Then over the first half of the cycle, about the first two weeks, estrogen gradually increases. Progesterone still stays quite low. Around the time of ovulation, which is about the midpoint of the cycle, um, estrogen briefly spikes and comes back down to like a, an elevated baseline pretty quickly. Uh, but that's when progesterone starts ramping up. And then during the luteal phase, so the last two weeks of the cycle, um, estro estrogen and progesterone are both quite high. And so you kind of have, like, pretty much everything's low at the very start of the follicular phase, like from the onset of menses up to about three or four days post. Um, but then there's, like, a window of about seven to ten days, give or take, where estrogen starts elevating, but progesterone is still quite low. And it seems like during that phase, uh, women recover from training a little bit quicker, um, maybe respond a little bit better to training. There's, like, several studies that look at uh, training concentrated during the follicular phase versus concentrated during the luteal phase, finding that women tend to respond to training a little bit better during the follicular phase. Um, and then during the luteal phase, a lot of that kind of reverses. And so there's a paper by Markovsky et al. from 2014 looking at recovery from pretty challenging eccentric exercise, finding that recovery, so initial fatigue is a bit greater and recovery rates are quite a bit slower during the luteal phase, so during the last two weeks of the cycle than during the follicular phase. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Those are things that happen, but I also don't necessarily think you need to move heaven and earth to plan a training cycle around that. So basically, like, you know, if um, if you're on good enough terms with a female client that she's willing to be open with you about her monthly cycle, if, say, you have a deload coming up and you have the option to put that at some point during the luteal phase when maybe she's going to respond to training a little bit worse in the first place, yeah, then that may be something to, you know, maybe push a block of training a week longer than you would have otherwise, or cut it off maybe a week earlier than you would have otherwise. Um, yeah, maybe you could do that. And maybe if you if you use, like, monthly mesocycles, like four-week mesocycles of training, Maybe it would be a good idea to have the heaviest or, like, hardest, most challenging, highest volume blocks take place during the 
uh, full healer phase and maybe like if you have a deload every month or like a couple easier weeks of training, have those take place during the luteal phase. Like th- that's something you could account for. Um, but it's not something that's going to make a night and day difference. Okay. Fantastic. You, you did mention, um, specifically, uh, a lot of people being on hormonal contraceptive. And one question I get asked frequently is, um, does, uh, the hormonal contraceptive or do hormonal contraceptives, um, have any effect on, um, on strength training? Probably not anymore. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, um, so, I mentioned progesterone and how it largely counters a lot of the beneficial things that estrogen does. And most uh, hormonal contraceptives are going to have synthetic progestins in them. And the more androgenic a progestin is, the generally the worst it is, the worse it is for a female athlete. Um, that may sound counterintuitive. You think androgenic, you think androgenic anabolic steroids make you jack. But it's the exact opposite with progestins. So they will bind to um, androgen receptors and then not let androgens bind to those receptors and do good stuff. So it's like a competitive inhibition thing. And so the more androgenic a progestin is, generally the worse it's probably going to be for um, for female athletes. And so the early generation hormonal contraceptives tended to have quite androgenic progestins. And the research that was done looking at the effects of um, of those types of hormonal contraceptives on strength and hypertrophy largely found that it was bad. It decreased strength gains. It decreased rates of hypertrophy. Not what you want to see. Um, but the more recent hormonal contraceptives that have been developed use less androgenic progestins. And so they're going to have uh, fewer negative effects. And so the more recent studies that have been done looking at strength and hypertrophy in users versus non-users of hormonal contraceptives largely find that those hormonal contraceptives don't seem to do much of anything in terms of negative training effects on strength and hypertrophy. So uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of female athletes think that, um, that using hormonal contraceptives is going to be bad for their gains. Like that's an idea that got started. And when that idea got started, it was probably true. Um, like if people were saying stuff like that in the eighties or nineties, the hormonal contraceptives that were available then probably did have negative effects on strength and hypertrophy. But the ones that people would be using nowadays seem to not have notably negative effects. Okay. Um, there's probably a huge amount of research that remains to be done um, when it comes to, let's say, um, kind of bridging that gap in the amount of women and men that, that feature in, in, in uh, let's say, strength sport uh, literature and, and um, within all the studies that have been done so far. Are there any areas in particular that you would kind of like to see investigated more um, right now? Huh. I mean, sorry for putting you on the spot. (laughs) I I mean, really pretty much everything, honestly, man. Cause like the, um, so if you look at, at rates, if you look at the amounts of male and female subjects within the exercise science literature in general, um, 
it's actually not as skewed as it used to be. So during the 80s or 90s, or actually probably a little bit further back, but it used to be super skewed, something like 70, 80% of the subjects being men, like 20, 30% being women. Now it seems the ratio is closer to 60, 40, which, you know, probably still isn't ideal, but is a lot better than it used to be. But a lot of those subjects are either in like aerobic training studies or especially like geriatrics, because like I led with, um, a lot more women get osteoporosis than men. Sarcopenia, pretty common in both sexes. So there's a lot of exercise literature on older women. Um, but like, man, there's just not much strength training research in general, really in any sub niche in female subjects. So as, as one fairly striking example of that, um, <laughs> so there's got probably like 15 plus studies at this point comparing high load and low load resistance training and the effects on hypertrophy in male subjects until, I don't know, fuck, maybe six months ago, there was one study in women from 2012. Um, and, and there have been a few more published since then, but I remember writing an article about high load versus low load training. And the takeaway was basically like, yeah, if, if you're a man, like on a set for set basis, seems to be pretty similar for women. High load seems to be quite a bit better, but I mean, fuck, do we really know there's literally only one study? Um, and so now, now that a few more have been published, it kind of looks like it's going the same way for, for women as it did for men that on a set for set basis seems to be pretty comparable, but like, man, there was that one study dangling out there from 2012 when there were, when there was like actually a fairly sizable body of literature. And then, um, a lot of the supplement studies, uh, especially with resistance training are super skewed as well. Um, like man with the, so I, I reviewed a study from mass a couple months ago, which was the first, uh, aerobic training study to compare the same relative dose of caffeine in men and women and, and the effects on cycling performance. And there's nothing like that for resistance training. And I want to, I mean, fuck, there's so many studies on caffeine and its effects on acute resistance training performance, whether that's maximal strength, strength endurance, power output, like, I mean, there's probably 20 or 30 studies, and I think maybe two of them are in women. <laughs> um, th there is a fair amount of protein literature in women. Like, it, it's also fairly skewed, but that is that seems to be better than most, like, supplement, uh, like supplement niches. But, yeah, I mean, man, female subjects are, are pretty rare in general, um, just in the resistance training literature, which to... To kind of defend researchers a little bit, I don't think that that's just purely due to sexism. So, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that, like, so I I personally don't think that um, that strength varies all that much throughout the menstrual cycle. There are a few studies you can point to where, like, maybe women are a little bit stronger around ovulation. Like, I think there are two or three studies finding that, but. Like, two of them use, like, finger flexor strength, which I don't know how relevant that is. Um, and if you look at all of the literature that's out there, you can find a few studies where women are stronger during the follicular phase, a few where they're stronger during the luteal phase. I tend to think that the strength differences that have popped up in the literature so far 
are probably just false positives due to small sample research and that it probably doesn't vary all that much. But if you run into like a really, if you, if you run into a reviewer who's having a bad day, um, you know, and you don't control for menstrual cycle when you're testing female subjects pre and post training, they can say like, oh, well, maybe strength varies during the menstrual cycle. So like, this is something you didn't control. Your research sucks, you know? Um, and that's just something you don't have to worry about if your subjects are male. And, like, logistics are always a tremendous pain in the ass uh, when it comes to planning really any study, you know. So, like, there's more logistics you have to account for when you have female subjects. Also, like, like I mentioned before, recruiting is also always a pain in the ass. And so if you want to do a study on trained subjects and, you know, men engage in resistance training at, like, two to three times the rate women do, you're going to have a lot easier time recruiting male subjects than female subjects, you know? Um, so, so like I get why that disparity is there, but like it is just more effort to do research on female subjects. Uh, but there's, I mean, basically the entire resistance training literature, there's huge gaps uh, that still need to be filled. So it's hard to pick just one thing because it's literally the entire field. Wow. Uh, so a lot of work to be done. Um, Greg, I, I could literally speak to you and kind of pick your brains, you know, you know, for the next few hours. Um, you've already been incredibly generous with your time. And I just want to say thank you very, very much for that. Um, before we kind of start finishing up, um, first off, uh, I want to ask, where can people who kind of want to follow more of your stuff um, and, and kind of follow you, where can they find you? Um, and what else are you involved in? So uh, if you're interested in written content, all of my free stuff is on strongerbyscience.com. Uh, if you prefer an audio format, you can check out the Stronger by Science podcast wherever fine podcasts are found, or you can go to sbspod.com. Um, if you're interested in the research review that I put out every month with Eric Helms, Mike Zordos, and recently added to the team, Eric Trexler, um, that's called Mass Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. You can find that at strongerbyscience.com slash mass. And then in terms of social media stuff, I used to be way more active on Facebook, but like, goddamn, politics season is ramping up and Facebook has become a fucking hellscape recently. So I've been, <laughs> I've been more active on Instagram recently. So. If you're interested in my lifting or my occasional food post, you can follow me at Greg Knuckles or specifically for like good fitness content. You can follow the business account, which is at official stronger by science. Fantastic. And I just want to say to everybody, um, like I, I've been following Greg's stuff for a few years. He, his written content from stronger by science or as was previous, previously known strength theory. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, Greg goes into the kind of details that most people don't in this industry. So he has some fantastic insights um, into training um, and a really, really enjoyable uh, written style. I highly recommend the podcast. Um, I'm only a few episodes in, but um, Greg has an absolutely fantastic banter going with uh, his co-host, or should I say the main host and, and Greg, you're kind of like the provisional co-host. Uh, who, yes. er, er, exactly with Eric Trexler. Um, you guys have a fantastic, like it's a really, really entertaining podcast. Um, 
but it's really educational as well. You do learn a lot from these guys. Um, and then Mass, I've only read uh, one or two issues of Mass. I loved it. Um, and if you are very, very interested in the science that goes into the science and research behind strength sports, I highly recommend that. Um, Greg, what do you have coming up yourself, um, either professionally or, or, or personally, in the, in the next uh, in the next few months? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question, man. I, I tend to take things a day at a time. Let me think. Uh, I got a conference coming up in Canada, in Edmonton, next month. Um, I guess, I guess that's the only like big thing on the horizon. Um, okay. yeah, other than that, just working along on stuff. I, I still, I still need to put out the final version of my program, uh, Average to Savage 2.0. I got, like, the beta stuff done, but um, need to put the finishing touches on that and have for, like, the past four months. Um, still need to finish up the second editions of my books. That's been <laughs> that's been hanging over me for, like, three years. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of stuff I should get get on but who knows when that stuff will come out i i think you will be completely forgiven you know for for not being immediately on top of all those things you know considering you've just finished your master's i, I think people are will, will accept that um yeah I, I i can only use that excuse but for so long though like it, it's gonna run out of <laughs> <laughs> uh are we going to see any more um research or collaboration on research um from you in the future uh Maybe, but I don't want to give any details on that yet. Oh, hush, hush. Okay, perfect. Um, Greg, I just want to say thank you so much for the talk today. It's It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, pleasure speaking with you. I'm sure everybody's gotten a huge amount from this. Um, if, you ha- if you're not doing so already, please, please follow uh, Greg on social media. Um, and, yeah, I want to say thanks, Greg, and uh, have a great night. Hopefully we'll have you on sometime in the future. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, If you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. Uh, If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at bemorenutrition. That's at bemorenutrition underscore more underscore nutrition i'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast so please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on instagram i'd love to hear what you have to say i'll be back soon with another podcast see you then